Well, welcome to The Crossing on this time change weekend. Glad you made it here. Also like to welcome our Southeast campus, our microsites, all those who are watching online. Can we give them a big welcome this morning? Glad that you're with us, part of the Crossing family. Well, Easter is just three weeks away, and this is the most significant weekend for followers of Jesus. We have eight services on our two campuses. At the Southeast campus, our service times are the same at 10 and 11.30. And then here at the Windmill campus, every time changes, we have six services starting Saturday at 4 and 6, and then Sunday at 8, 9.30, 11, and 12.30. Here's what we know. Our 9.30 and 11, we will run out of seats. We will be standing room only. So if you are able to come on Saturday night, or come Sunday at the 8 or the 12.30, that will provide seats for people who are coming to the crossing for the first time. It will be a big help for us. And when you came in, you were given these invite cards. These are tools for you to be able to invite a friend. I was reading this week that four out of five people who do not go to church said that if somebody invited them to an Easter service, they would go. So this is a tool for you to invite somebody, make a bold invitation, invite them to be here as part of this weekend. It's just going to be a fantastic weekend together as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Well, we're in week two of our series called Crucial Conversations. Jesus loved having these crucial conversations with people. It didn't matter whether they were religious or non-religious whether they were a skeptic or believer, men, women, young, old, none of that mattered. Jesus would just meet them on their turf and he would have these spiritual conversations that had the potential to change their life. And just like back then, every one of us are in a different place in our spiritual life. Have you ever noticed that um, when you look at someone else's spiritual life, you kind of feel intimidated by that because your spiritual life is not like that? I mean, you hear about the mom who gets up at 4.30 every morning so she can spend time in prayer. And you can't even get yourself out of bed because your kids were climbing all over you last night. Or that guy who seems to know everything about the Bible and you read the Bible and you just, you just don't get it. Well, every one of us, we connect with God in a different way. Some of you feel closest to God when you're outside, when you're in creation, some of you feel closest to God when you're in a small group or you're on a mission trip or you're in a worship service. But there's a lot of people that your connection to God is intellectually. You feel closest to God when you are intellectually connecting with him, that you draw closer to him when you're learning more about him. If this is you, you love to study the scripture. The word theology has the same impact on you as the word hot donuts has for those of us who love Krispy Kreme. When you go to church, if this is you, if this is your connection to God, you often find yourself putting up with the music or coming in late so you don't have to sing the songs because you're here for the sermon. When, when Moses was talking about God's central command, God's greatest commandment, Moses said that God's greatest command was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And Jesus came along and Jesus added a word. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and then Jesus added a word, with all your mind. And for those of you that connect with God this way, you're glad that he added that. 
because you connect with God intellectually. And while the intellectual pathway can help you grow in a deeper relationship with God, it can also be this wall that stands between you and God. Because a lot of people who who have this intellectual mindset, they, they weigh everything on their five senses. And if they can't touch it, smell it, see it, then it's not truth. It's just conjecture. Maybe it's just fantasy. Or if God doesn't fit into the box of the way that you think that God ought to fit into it, then it can't be true. Well, today, we're looking at a conversation that Jesus had with a scholar. He was an intellectual, and this became the wall between him and God. So if you have your Bibles, you have your Bible apps, turn to John chapter 3. The main character in our story today is a guy by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was not just an ordinary guy. Nicodemus was an elite man from an elite family. In fact, his grandfather was the Jewish ambassador to the Roman emperor Pompey. His father was a decorated war general. And Nicodemus, his name means victory for the people. He is an important guy. And he has this conversation with Jesus. And so we're going to start John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now there was a Pharisee. A man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now in Jesus' time, there was actually 6,000 Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the the most elite religious leaders of the day. They were the ones that everybody looked at because they thought that they were the most spiritual people. But Nicodemus is part of the Jewish ruling council. This is a group that we actually know as the Sanhedrin that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was was 70 men who were the most powerful and most spiritual leaders in Israel. They were the ones who, who ran everything. So when you think of the Sanhedrin, just think of the Senate and the Supreme Court all rolled into one, and that's what the Sanhedrin is. Well, verse 2, it goes on. It says, he came to Jesus at night. Now, we don't know why he came at night. Maybe he came at night because the crowds were always so thick during the day that that he couldn't get close to Jesus. But here's my guess. My guess is he came to Jesus at night because he didn't want anybody to know he was coming to Jesus. He he wanted to be able to kind of go in private so nobody saw him. And he says, Rabbi, now this is a term of respect. Even though Jesus didn't have credentials... Even though Jesus was not formally trained, Nicodemus has respect for Jesus. He calls him rabbi. He says, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. Well, he's representing some other people. He says, we know. I think he's the one who's coming for these other people. Say, you go talk to him. Go find out more about him. He says, we know that you come from God. He's like, I cannot put my finger on it. But there is something different about you. Because no one could perform these signs if God was not with them. Now, we think of these signs that Jesus did as miracles. That Jesus performed all these miracles. When Jesus healed people, it was not just a miracle. When Jesus fed the 5,000, That was not just a miracle. Every supernatural act was a sign that pointed to something. These signs clearly come from God. 
Then Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Jesus answers his question before he's even had a chance to ask it. He just says no one can, be, no one can see God unless they are born again. He's saying, let me just get to the bottom line. Because Nicodemus, if, if you believe that I came from God, because you said that I come from God, no one can see God unless they're born again. See, the Jewish people thought that they had access to God because they were born Jewish. That they were born into the kingdom of God. Jesus says, that's not true. That is not true. Not unless you are born again. Well, Nicodemus says, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a, a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, I think he has a smile on his face. I think he's kind of playing along with Jesus going, okay, so we all know how this works. And you can't go into a mother's womb again a second time. I think what he's saying here is, I came here with deep questions and you're throwing this nonsense out to me. I don't get it. I don't understand what you're saying. Well, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. See, we know this. I'm about to become a grandfather. In three weeks, I'll be a grandfather. We know that flesh gives birth to flesh. But the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. That here Jesus is saying, he's like, Nicodemus, you ought to know that physical birth does not get you into heaven. The Jews believed that if you were related to Abraham, which they were, then you were in. But Jesus is pushing against this idea. He's saying, something has to happen to you spiritually. You have to be born again. He says this. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit, the wind. It's a mystery to us. I mean, we can kind of forecast it, but it's a mystery to us how that all comes together. And he's saying, your logical mind cannot make sense of all of this because you cannot nail down spiritual matters like you want to nail them down. That God is not limited to this little box that you have for him. Entrance into the kingdom of God requires a second birth, a spiritual birth. And I love this. Nicodemus just says, how can this be? What are you talking about, Jesus? This doesn't even make sense to me. Because Nicodemus is an expert in religion. And religion is all about working your way to God. Jesus said, you're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I mean, you're the one that everybody comes to. I mean, you're the religious leader. Everybody comes to you and you don't understand these things. Well, he just keeps talking and Nicodemus doesn't get it. It says this, it says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. And Nicodemus is like, okay, finally something I can understand. I understand Moses. I know what you're talking about. He says, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. 
This story that Jesus is referring to comes out of Numbers chapter 21. And what is happening is the children of Israel, they're wandering in the desert. They're wandering in the desert for 40 years. And because of their disobedience, the people have been attacked by snakes. And so they're sick and they're dying. And Moses puts up a bronze snake on a pole. And everyone who looks at the snake, they're healed. Well, when Jesus says, the Son of Man, this is a reference, this is code word for the Messiah. But here's what he's saying. If the Son of Man is put on a pole, that means that the Son of Man is cursed. But of course, Jesus is talking about the cross. Nicodemus doesn't get it. Jesus says that everyone, everyone who believes will have eternal life. That everyone who believes, not just those who are born into the right religion, not just those who have worked their way to God, that everyone who believes. And then this conversation ends. And Nicodemus goes back to his buddies and said, yep, I had a conversation with Jesus, but I didn't quite get it. Something about the wind and born again, and I, I don't quite understand what he said, but it was, it was pretty amazing. At this point, Nicodemus, he's a doubter. How could this be? I mean, how could all of this be? He, he's just a doubter. Because his entire life, he taught that eternal life is only for those who were born into the right religion. And now Jesus is saying it's for everyone who believes. Maybe you have a little doubter in you. Maybe there's something that happened in your life. Maybe there is a story that you could tell. Because maybe it just doesn't make sense to your intellectual mind. And so there's just a little bit of doubter, and it's become this wall between you and God. Your doubts have been. People ask me every now and then, they'll say, do you have doubts? And I think they want me to answer in one of two ways. They either want me to say, yes, I have doubts, because they have doubts, and they figure if I have doubts, then they're okay. You know, that we're kind of both in this together. Or they want me to say no. Because they figure, I know something that they don't know, and so they can just piggyback on my faith. Well, we all go through these seasons of doubt. We all go through these moments where we wonder, where things just don't quite make sense. And for Nicodemus, he goes from being a doubter to a defender. Fast forward about a year later after this conversation, and things start to heat up around Jesus. And most of the Sanhedrin has had en enough with him. They have heard enough of his teachings. They've heard enough about the miracles that he's performing. They've heard enough about his popularity because everybody's talking about him. They've heard enough of his comments about them. And so finally they decide that they're going to arrest him and bring him in for questioning. And so they send for the temple guard. Now, the temple guard is just this small army that the Jews had that, that just watched over the affairs of the temple. They said, we want you to go and find Jesus and arrest him. So the temple guard goes out and they find Jesus. And Jesus is in the middle of teaching. And then look what it says here in chapter 7, verse 45. It says, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? They said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. The guards replied, the guards were so mesmerized by Jesus' teaching, they forget to arrest him. 
They're watching him teach. And then all of a sudden he's gone. They're like, oh, wow, we were supposed to arrest him. And they didn't. And they come back empty-handed. No one has ever taught like this before. It goes on here in chapter 7. It says, you mean he's deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. They're saying, we're smart. We're the ones that know the word of God. And we don't believe in him. Who are you low-level people? You're just a temple guard. And now you're being drawn in by him? But there are two guys who are in the Sanhedrin. There's a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. It doesn't say it here, but I think that they made eye contact with each other. I think that they know something's going on, and they make eye contact as if to say, are you going to say something? I think you need to say something, Nicodemus. It says in this next verse, says, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who is the one, um, one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. They're like, hey, Nicodemus, it sounds like you're defending him at this point. Nicodemus, you realize the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. The Messiah, he comes from Bethlehem, but maybe you've just been hanging around him too much. But there is something that is stirring in Nicodemus. That he's pondering the words that he had with Jesus. He's pondering this crucial conversation. And it, it seems like at this point, he is beginning to cross the line because his doubts, it's turning into defense. Maybe you had a crucial moment in your faith journey. It was a crucial moment where your doubts all of a sudden begin to take that next step. And you begin to feel something different in your life. Well, that's what's happening to Nicodemus. Fast forward in the Pharisees, they've had enough. It's about a year later. And they believe that the tide has turned and they can finally arrest Jesus. So they make a deal with one of the disciples to betray him. And then they get the temple guard together again at night to go arrest Jesus. They figure nobody's going to be around him. And they say to the temple guard, hey, guys... Don't screw it up this time. You couldn't quite do it last time. So go at nighttime. Nobody's going to be around. We've hired one of the disciples to take you to where he is. He will show who he is so you can arrest him. And so they show up in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there is this sword fight with Peter. And finally, Jesus puts that to rest. And they arrest him. They bring him in for a mock trial. They've paid witnesses to lie about Jesus. And then they hand him over to the Romans so that the Romans will execute him so that there's no blood on their hands. And they take Jesus out to a hill. And they crucify him between two criminals. And in John chapter 19, it says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Now, this was not unprecedented, that if you had enough, you could bribe your way into getting the crucified body of a loved one. 
that if you had enough money. But usually you had to pay a lot of money. Because typically what would happen is after they crucified somebody, they would just leave them on the cross just to die and decay, that, that animals would come and would begin to eat the body, and then after a while, they would have slaves that would take them down and take them to the city dump. But most likely, Joseph had paid off Pilate, and Pilate gave permission to remove the body. Then it says, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus that night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and 75 pounds, taking um, aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. And then they buried Jesus in a tomb. It was in Joseph's tomb. Think about what was at stake for these rule-keeping Pharisees to handle a dead body means that you would be defiled for the Passover. You wouldn't be able to to go into the temple and to worship in the temple because you have been considered unclean. The Passover was the biggest celebration of the year. No true Pharisee would ever do that for any reason. In addition, Nicodemus makes this huge financial investment, 75 pounds of myrrh. That's the equivalent in today's dollars of over $100,000 that he invested. It's it's this expression of gratitude and love. Listen, the cross does that to people. The cross does that to people. See, Nicodemus has moved from being a doubter to a defender to a disciple. That he has finally come to this place. I wonder if he could hear the words of Jesus in that first conversation as he was talking to Jesus. As Jesus said these words right here. Jesus says, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And for the first time he gets it. As he's taking Jesus' body off the cross, he's like, that's what he meant. That he must be lifted up so that all people could come to him. Well, in John chapter 3. The Apostle John, who's writing this story, he's the only one who records the story of Nicodemus. John pulls out of this story of Nicodemus and explains what Jesus is saying because Nicodemus didn't understand. Nicodemus didn't get it. But John wants to make sure that you understand. And here's what John tells us. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That you are this whoever. That right now it's, it's because you don't have to be born into the right religion. You don't have to be born into the right family. It is for whoever believes in him. And John does something that had never been done before in Greek literature. He takes two words, this word believes and this preposition in, and he joins them together and he creates this new word. And it's not believe that Jesus is something. It is to believe in Jesus. It is to put your trust in Jesus. Then in verse 17, he says, for God did not send his son, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. God did not send Jesus into this world to condemn the world. He didn't send Jesus into the world to judge the world. He didn't send Jesus so he could lecture us on everything that we've done wrong. He sent his son into the world to save the world, to save you, 
to save me. The message of Jesus is offensive. The message of Jesus that eternal life comes only through him, it's offensive. But those same words are life-changing. See, my challenge is, why not take the next step? Your life will never make sense until you involve God in the process. There's something about this intellectual wall that so many people build up. And maybe you've built up an intellectual wall. I talked to a guy last week. He's, he's a scientist. 61 years old. He says, Shane, I, my entire life has been, does this intellectually make sense? And he says, I started coming to the crossing, and I started feeling something different that I've never felt before. So you begin to take this down the way that Nicodemus did. Just one brick at a time. Nicodemus didn't immediately become a disciple. Nicodemus just began to take down this wall brick by brick, step by step, getting closer and closer to Jesus. And so my encouragement is to take that next step, to take a step closer to Jesus. Because for some of you, you're right here, you're a doubter. You've had these doubts that they don't completely make sense. Maybe you have a story that goes with this of being a doubter. Maybe you have this story and for whatever reason, you just walked away. But you started coming back to church. Maybe there was a change in your life. Maybe a new season. Maybe you felt like, I need to get my kids into church. But for whatever reason, you've come back into church. My challenge is, what would it look like for you to just to take a next step? That you don't have to go all in yet. But what would it look like for you just to begin to read your Bible? For you to, to get closer to Jesus, what could he do in you? Some of you, this is where you are right here. You're not a follower of Jesus yet, but you find yourself defending him. Because when people at work say that the Bible's irrelevant, you go, I don't think it is. Because you found some relevance in God's word. And when people begin to talk about how Jesus is just this mythical figure, you find yourself defending him. What if you took that next step and you became a disciple today? What if you surrendered your life to Jesus and became a disciple? Here's what Jesus said. Jesus says, if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus unless you're ready to surrender your life and your will. You want to know the first step of becoming a disciple? It's to be baptized, be born again. It's to have this new birth, this spiritual birth. We're going to be doing baptisms after every service on Easter, and maybe you're ready for this. Maybe you're ready to finally surrender your life and to be buried in Christ and raised to walk in a brand new life. That's what it means. For a lot of us, you, you've been here. You want to know what your next step is? Your next step is to become a discipler. That you make disciples. That here's how you do this. You just tell your story. Just tell your story how Jesus has changed your life. Invest in some people in your life and some friendships. And then invite them to take their next step. 
just kind of see where they are and just to invite them into that next step. That's what it means to be a discipler, is that you are beginning to make disciples. So I want to pray with you. And I'm going to ask that you just bow your heads and close your eyes because I want to give the opportunity for some of you to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life. I'm going to give you the opportunity to become a disciple. If God feels distant right now, it may be because you're distant from God and you just need to know he's not far. He is knocking on the door of your life and he's saying, I'm here. And so I just want to lead you through a prayer. This is just a prayer you can say silently between you and God. Say this. Say, God, I am surrendering my life to Jesus today. I am denying myself. I'm taking up my cross, and I'm going to follow him. Say, God, today I'm asking that you would forgive my sins. I'm receiving Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Listen, you're not saved by a prayer. You're saved by Jesus. This is just a step to help you. God, thank you for this story of Nicodemus. God, this journey that he made. God, and we're on this journey. God, and for a lot of us here, maybe it's just the intellectual mindset has just been this wall. And God, we want to begin to take that down. So God, I pray that you would give us the courage to take our next step, to keep seeking, to keep going. And we give this all to Jesus. And we pray this in his name.